As the focus on transitioning to net zero has intensified, so too has the concept and practice of sustainable investing. But what does that look like when investing in infrastructure? And why is it imperative that investors stay the course despite the difficult macro environment? In this special episode sponsored by Glenmont Partners and Actis, we'll dive into these topics. Joining us are Glenmont Partners founding partner and CEO, Joost Bergsma, and Actis partner and head of sustainability, Shami Nissan. I'm Kalaipi Gwantis with Infrastructure Investor, and this is Spotlight. With sustainable investing meaning different things to different people, the first thing to do is to ensure that both our guests are on the same page. Sustainable investing has to be for the long term. That's Joost Bergsma. Uh, secondly, it means that it has to be holistic when it comes to sustainability. It can't sort of pick on one or two particular components, but really a holistic approach. And thirdly, of course, there's got to be some sort of positive impact. The positive impact, I would say, you can break down into different components. I would say certainly returns and profitability are a part of it. Shami Nissan agrees. I think of sustainable as something that is enduring, something that is profitable and something that is positive. All of those combined to deliver, I think, what is a sustainable investment. Profitability, though, in a macro environment characterized by high inflation and high interest rates might prove challenging. How then do you keep sustainability a top priority? Some argue that under current circumstances, it's a luxury. Nissan certainly doesn't think so and doesn't mince words when explaining why. Is sustainable investment a luxury? I would say absolutely not. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a necessity. We kind of live in a time of permacrisis, as we've all heard recently. We've got the energy security issue. We've got climate change, the latest IPCC report and all the evidence that we receive and read is ever more stark. We had this decade as our decade of action to keep 1.5 alive, as they say, and that looks like it's under threat as a possible outcome. We have biodiversity. We're crossing all kinds of biological thresholds. We've got inequality gaps like never before. We've got population explosion. We absolutely have to make sure that all investment is sustainable investment. I think that some of the confusion around, I suppose, definitions has contributed to some opacity here. And there's a misunderstanding maybe that sustainable investment is in tension with profits, and that's not the case. So we must think of investing sustainably as something that's value accretive, that's necessary for society, for returns, for people, for planet. And to not consider material ES or G issues as an investor is simply not prudent. It's not fulfilling your fiduciary responsibility. Bergsma's view is along those same lines. Of course, when you invest and, and when you build projects, you cannot be completely ignoring the times of this moment. You also have to take those into account. And of course, these are challenging times. At the same time, at Glenmont, we're, we're focused very much on, on clean energy. And if you look at what clean energy has done over the last 15 years, the cost to produce new electricity from clean energy has come down very significantly. So the word luxury doesn't really apply anymore to clean energy today. I would say wind and solar are very affordable ways to generate electricity. But sustainable investing isn't just about what assets or sectors you invest in, but how you invest and how you monitor your portfolio. Things investors demand information on but also information Glenmont Partners is committed to providing, according to Bergsma. So if you look at, let's say, specific KPIs that we have, clearly 
uh, we have KPIs around carbon offsets, and that goes quite detailed. And we have, let's say, objective ways to look at carbon offsets. That's an important one. I think job creation is something else that is very important. There has been historically a little bit of criticism that the energy transition didn't create enough jobs. I think by now that perception has luckily changed, but still it's an important indicator. A little bit less relevant for, let's say, offshore wind and solar and so on is is water and so on and, and these kind of things. But again, we track those as well. Stakeholder community engagement. Uh, these are uh, distributed power stations that are really quite close to the community. The community has often been involved in the development and the licensing uh, before these projects became operational. So those are some of the key things. Biodiversity is something else that is increasingly more important. So there are quite an array of KPIs that we track. Going into that, it's important, of course, that the data that you have is consistent. Again, that is something where we put a lot of work in making sure that as we operate all these assets, that they produce uh, data that is detailed and consistent. But luckily today, with software and internet and so on, a lot more is possible than 15 years ago. Actus also puts in a lot of work on KPIs and data, collecting data on at least 80 to 100 KPIs per company on an annual basis. Some of it is driven by regulation, while some of it is driven by Actus's policy, Nissan explains. It would cover everything from everything emissions related, both avoided emissions, but emissions to air, emissions to water, land. Uh, we look at jobs created, whether they're permanent or temporary, percentage of women employed. We look at local versus expats. We look at biodiversity. We spend a lot of time looking at gender as well. So percentage of women at the board at management level and in the workforce. We look at community issues, number of grievances per quarter, severity of those grievances, dollars spent on community investment programs, number of beneficiaries from those programs. The list goes on. Is there a grievance mechanism at company level? Were there any business integrity breaches or allegations? So all of the areas under the kind of broad banners of ESRG, uh, cyber as well, physical security as well, you can add to that, human rights, supply chain, all of those aspects get folded into the KPIs. With many of our portfolio companies, we also have subcommittees to the board, so sustainability subcommittees that meet quarterly. We have our eyes and ears kind of firmly to the ground in terms of what's going on with our companies which is a fantastic way to kind of have your finger on the pulse and not just troubleshoot, but also course correct if it's needed. It's clear then that both Glenmont and Actus use KPIs not just to monitor environmental impact, but impact as it relates across the ESG spectrum. That holistic approach is also reflected in their view of ESG overall. When asked whether the E should be separate from the S and G, here's what they said. I don't think that it's possible to think of climate change as an E-only issue. To do so just exposes kind of a lack of understanding of how existential the climate crisis is for mankind. It affects lives and livelihoods. It is utterly reshaping those countries that are most vulnerable to the near-term effects of climate change. And let's be clear, some countries perhaps the Maldives, whose highest point about sea level is something like two meters, will simply cease to exist. We already have locked in some of the physical changes that will come from the trajectory that we're on, and that includes sea level rises. So to think for a second that climate is an environmental issue, not a social or a governance one, I think is just a fallacy. So I I absolutely think what's needed is a holistic approach. Climate is utterly urgent and complex. 
However, we can't afford to just focus on the E. I think that the key kind of phrase that is relevant here is the concept of the just transition, which is a capital J. So that refers to a transition that is equitable, that is inclusive, that leaves no country behind, that doesn't you know, leave any kind of community or group worse off as we try to accelerate the transition to a net zero future. Bergsma agrees that E, S and G belong together. I don't think it's sensible or indeed desirable to separate the three. I think clearly there is a lot of emphasis today on environmental and climate. But at the same time, I think investors that I speak to realize that you cannot decouple, i.e., for example, you can't sort of build massive amounts of solar park in Europe, but the way that these are produced is completely unsustainable. Clearly that that doesn't work, or you can't put lots of offshore wind parks in Germany into the sea, and then let's say significantly disturb, for example, fishery. So there is a lot of recognition that these things have to go hand to hand. The social component, i.e. creating jobs, Clean energy is also very distributed. It's really part and parcel. It's much more distributed than the classic way to produce electricity from coal and nuclear power stations. So embedding these solar and wind parks into the community is very, very important. And they have to be part and parcel of it. Otherwise, frankly, they will not last for 15 or 20 years, but be much shorter term. Staying on the topic of ESG, there is also a flip side to that. And that is the anti-ESG sentiment we've been seeing in the past year or so. It's particularly pronounced in the U.S., where sentiment has actually translated into anti-ESG legislation. Nissan doesn't shrug it off, but she does describe it as being not a universal view. She also acknowledges that some criticism may be justified. Where I think that some criticism is potentially valid would be on issues of where there has been some greenwashing. I think a lot of so-called greenwashing has been inadvertent, perhaps. Maybe people just not being as specific in terms of giving real thought to the accuracy of what claims they are making or what statements they are issuing. I would say probably a minority of that has been kind of cynical greenwashing, if we can call it that. But I think where that has happened, I think all criticism there is valid. And, you know, I personally think that the extra scrutiny from various regulatory regimes to look at what companies are saying about what they do is frankly welcome. We need to be careful about what we say and this industry needs to hold itself to the highest standards. Kind of integrity is inherent to sustainability. So it's right that we're careful about what is said and it's right that LPs are able to make discerning judgments about who they entrust with their capital based on what is being said. So I think that the SFDR regime and many other similar ones that are being rolled out globally will help a great deal with the greenwashing. I think the other area where some criticism is valid, as I mentioned earlier, is just confusion around definitions. This industry, I've worked in it for over 20 years, we have done ourselves no favors with the amount of acronyms, sustainability, ESG, SDG, we started out with SRI, we have impact now, we have transition as a theme, is that impact, is it not, is the subject of many conferences. We have Article 9 in SFDR, so there's questions around, is Article 9 the same thing as impact and vice versa? In addition to helping minimize greenwashing, the EU's SFDR is also driving the need for many LPs to demand data from their GPs with regards to sustainable investing. Bergsma explains how the types of questions and information Glenmont's LPs ask for have evolved. 
we've been investing, I suppose, for 15 years or so in the energy transition and infrastructure. And I would say 15 years ago, it was a bit sort of the exception rather than the rule to talk about sustainability. And today it's very much the rule. It's part of almost all conversations that we have. And that is indeed global. Huh? So in the past, it used to be a couple of my fellow countrymen from the Netherlands that were very concerned or Scandinavia about sustainability. But for example, this morning, I had a meeting with a Japanese investor where very broadly speaking, five or eight years ago, this wasn't the sort of number one theme that you got asked about, but they were very engaged about ESG, very engaged about impact. So I would say it's very much the rule these days that sustainability is fully intertwined into your process. I think the second thing, which is also common as on, is that you can't just sort of be superficial anymore. You can't just sort of say, oh, we do this and this, and then the conversation stops and you tick the box. Nissan describes a similar experience at Actus. I would say that the overwhelming trend has probably been more questions more thoughtful questions during due diligence. The vast majority are keen to understand more about how we're doing things. In the old days, it was much more binary. Have you signed up to such and such initiative? Now it's how are you fulfilling your policies? How do you implement? How do you operationalize? So we're seeing a lot more, you know, in summary, a lot more during the due diligence stage, during the ownership stage. I would say the hot topics are around carbon transition, but also diversity, equity, and inclusion. We get much more on that. So overall, much more interest in this area, I would say, on the whole. It's not surprising that carbon emissions and energy transition are some of the hot topics Glenmont and Actus field questions on from their clients. They're also some of the key themes both firms invest in. But what types of assets are they targeting and how has their investment strategy changed, if at all? Some things have changed and others haven't, Nissan says. We have been investing in renewable energy generation for decades. Much of our footprint is in the growth markets. That's where the um, natural resources, the wind and the irradiation are the strongest. So I think that hasn't changed. We have now, I think, arrived at 17 or 18 renewable energy businesses that we have owned and exited. So renewable energy, solar and wind definitely remains a top priority for us. I would say that a more recent theme is the kind of commercial and industrial areas. So who is your offtake? Who do you have a contract with? The kind of plethora of net zero commitments that we've seen in the business world, the, the desire of many corporates to source green, clean energy has created a new opportunity there to do business directly with large companies, for example. The other areas that we target is the enabling infrastructure around the wind and solar parks, which is sometimes forgotten about when people talk about energy transition. So by that, I mean the transition lines that carry the electricity and then the distribution network that connects that power to homes and businesses. So we also invest in transmission and distribution, really important part of the transition. That's about sort of avoidance of CO2 through generation of clean megawatts. I guess there's another piece to this that we think about or I think about as kind of greening the brown. One example Nissan gives is real estate, another sector Actus invests in. The focus there is developing, designing and building green certified buildings that are more efficient. Another example is data centers. A huge win there is if you can ensure that as much, if not all of the power that's needed is coming from green sources that hugely decarbonizes the data center. And then again, it's about efficiencies. So power within the system and how can you use as little as possible, as efficiently as possible. So those are kind of all focus areas for us and we consider them all as contributing to the transition. 
Glenmont, which has been investing in clean energy for 15 years now, has also adapted its approach in certain ways. The sort of assets that we're targeting, the big capital flows continue to go into offshore wind, onshore wind, solar PV. The reason is that those three technologies, when it comes to power generation, their cost curve has come down so significantly that they are significantly cheaper today and profitable without too much government support compared to, let's say, others that, that were there 15 years ago, geothermal, marine and wave those let's say the cost curve hasn't declined sufficiently yet so still those power generation sources of offshore wind onshore wind and solar pv are at the heart of what we target we do go about these assets now in a little bit different way or so than we were doing before in the past we were looking to get the best wind park and the best solar park built but today that is not enough so one thing that has changed is that we now also need to look at how the revenue of these assets is secured is no longer just good to buy the best wind park from a technology perspective. You also have to have a revenue solution. So that is sort of one change. The second change is around, I would say, it's no longer just one single asset. As I said, I think the scale of the energy transition has massively increased and the speed at which assets need to go into the ground. So we're looking now today when it comes to solar more at platform type opportunities, portfolio type opportunities. So it's multiple assets across a couple of countries under one platform rather than just a single solar park. And then also what has changed is that we look at these assets a little bit more holistically. So, for example, a wind park uses its grid connection maybe 25-30% of the time. So is there a way, let's say, where we have a wind park to also install solar? Because there are some good, let's say, overlaps in terms of the revenue profile and the production profile to increase the use of the existing infrastructure and existing grid connection from, let's say, 25-30%. to 30%. So things like hybridization, maximizing the output and so on are, are super important. So those are some of the changes compared to 10 years ago. What also has undoubtedly changed in the past 10 years is the urgency around climate change. And with that has come the need for resilient assets. But as Bergsma points out, that's a bit more difficult to achieve for existing renewables projects. That's why it's important, I think, that you do it now today when you start construction. Luckily, our strategy is quite construction focused. But at the construction stage is where, with today's data and today's know-how and today's, let's say, technical solutions, you need to prepare as best as you can, I think, going forward. Because climate, yeah, our wind parks are in windy places. If, you, if you're very close to a river or, let's say, at the bottom of a mountain range and so on, these kind of things are, are super important that you are taking the effects of, of changing climate and more volatile weather into account. Nissan agrees that resilience is absolutely key, as she describes it. First of all, because it concerns assets that are built to last for decades. But while severe weather events need to be taken into account at the development stage of a project, there's also another element that comes into play when thinking about resilience. Sometimes it becomes more fundamental to the actual energy yield of the assets, right? Uh, if you think about something like more long-term weather pattern features such as the El Nino effect, which could have an impact on irradiation and wind speeds. So it's important to understand it also from that point of view. How does it impact energy yields, not just what kind of negative weather events could impact your physical infrastructure? We sometimes look at operating assets from the point of view of what can we do to add some of that resilience. It is a little bit more difficult at that stage, but something that we have looked into, which are, we are looking into now, for example, for coastal areas is mangrove restoration, for example, which has a biodiversity positive impact, of course, but also prevents with surges and floods 
inundations, that sort of thing also tends to protect not just the infrastructure, but also communities in the area. So those are kind of interesting projects that one can look to invest in. And sometimes financing support is available also from lenders or multilaterals, DFIs, etc. The growing focus on climate change and the investment themes related to it has also led to a small but growing number of LPs creating dedicated climate allocations spanning different asset classes. Perhaps this is a good way to ensure more money flows into climate-friendly investments. It's sort of yes and no in the sense that by creating a special bucket, and I can understand why it's being done, you're sort of saying that the rest of your investment portfolio is not sort of climate-friendly, so you've got to be a bit careful there. I would say that holistically investors across all of their asset classes want to see that things are sustainable. And similar, I would say, sort of around the climate change issue, it's a bit hard to sort of ring-fence it to one particular pot of money. Obviously, overall, you've got to look at it, if you can, a little bit more holistically. At the same time, I think if you approach the question from a different angle, that indeed clean energy is one solution. I think the fact that investors are looking for multi-solutions that involve, let's say, sort of circular economy type approaches, biomass, for example, I would say those sort of things are really should be encouraged. I think the beauty of clean energy is that it is very close to people's livelihoods and can be integrated into your day. So from that perspective, I think looking at climate a bit more holistically, not just at energy, but also at other pockets that go into that, I think that should be encouraged. Nissan agrees that there's a lot going on that is testament to the holistic approach to climate change Bergsmo mentions. You have those kind of funds or products, I suppose, that are just pure play renewable energy. I think that's where initially we started and a lot of capital was flowing in that direction. Latterly, we've seen a lot of interest in kind of climate tech type solutions. You've got another kind of flavor or theme, which is the greening the brown, almost investing in the hard to abate areas, the cement, steel, uh, shipping, aviation, etc., with a view to bending that decarbonization curve down really quickly to deliver kind of so-called real world reductions. So, you know, and then you also have kind of the question marks around the green power and do you include gas or do you include nuclear, what have you. All of those products we've kind of seen different versions of those. And as Joost said, almost those kind of multi-sector ones then that combine all of the above, plus circular economy, plus waste to energy, sustainable ag, forestry, etc. You're even seeing kind of merging of things like real estate and agriculture in kind of urban vertical farming. So there's all kinds of things going on. I I think we need it all in a way. None of them are worse or better than the next one. It's up to the LP to decide what their investment strategy priority is and to find the right GP. And it's for the GPs to kind of understand what's their sweet spot, what's their investment strategy, and how can they kind of deliver those returns and those sustainability impacts. But I think the need for us to accelerate this transition is so strong that there is room and necessity for all of those different strategies to coexist. It's clear that sustainable investing will continue to be in the spotlight and part of infrastructure investors' coverage as the world strives to reach net zero. Thanks again to Shami Nissan from Actis and Joost Bergsma from Gunmont Partners for joining us. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts or at PEI Group's various titles online. I'm Kalaibi Gorntis with Infrastructure Investor. Thanks for listening.